Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible located at the bottom of a chair in front of you, you can turn to page 989. I'll be reading 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may the, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Just before we pray, you'll see a picture of uh, one of the local congregations here in town who are worshiping this morning, and I'd like for us to remember them in prayer as we pray for ourselves. So would you just bow your head for a moment before we look closely at the scriptures? Let's pray together, all right? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for truth in a world with so much error, so many lies, so much deception. Let us be very thankful for the truth. And may we, as well as the good folks at First Christian here in Mount Washington, may we and they as well listen and take heed as if we have an enemy who is working diligently to see that we do not stand. And the fact is we do have an enemy who is consistently at work with every effort to cause us to fall. But you speak to us today and say, stand firm. So help us toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My thoughts this week went to... um, the three young men that we read about in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And you remember that they, their job was to work in the king's palace, King Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll remember, if you, if you remember the story, and I hope you do, you'll remember there came a point where he erected a golden image and everyone within the kingdom was commanded to bow down to this golden image. You'll remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. They were told, you know, whoever doesn't bow down is going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. They refused to bow down, and they said, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Now, what were they doing? They were standing firm. You might say to yourself, gee, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if I could make that kind of stand. I wonder if I could stand firm in the midst of persecution, in the midst of intellectual assault, in the midst of fierce temptation from the devil. I wonder if I could do that. Well, this is exactly what we're being called to do. It's what we're reading in our text this morning. This young church, first century in Thessalonica, they were being encouraged and called to stand firm because they were facing, they were facing physical persecution, intellectual persecution, and temptation. And in the midst of that, they were being called to stand 
firm. And what we need to see today is we too are being called to stand firm. Can we do it? Will we do it? Well, as we unpack these passages, I think we're going to find some things that are going to help us to stand firm. The first thing I want you to consider today is the ground on which we stand firm. The ground on which we stand firm. A few years ago, I read an article that really helped me. It was entitled, Teaching Believers What Happened to Them in Conversion. The the, the way the article went was this. When a person comes to faith in Christ, they don't originally know all the glorious things that have happened to them. They need to be told. They need to be taught. Now, at first, that may sound odd to you. You you, Because what we're saying is, when, when someone first comes to faith in Christ, they don't know everything that's happened. And they have to be taught and told. And you say, well, how do we know that? That's what we're seeing here in our text. In fact, this is not the only place. You can read through the New Testament epistles and you find Paul, Peter, John instructing believers and telling them, here's what happened to you. Now, here's what you ought to ask. Why? Why do we have to be told and taught what God has so gloriously done for us? Well, think about it this way. Let's say that you get a letter from your bank and they inform you that in your account has been deposited $10 million. Now, immediately you're elated, right? You have this fresh information. You're informed. You know that you have $10 million in your account that you did not have. But then you read the letter further and the $10 million that you've received was bequeathed to you by your grandmother. And then you continue to read, and you read how that she had scraped and saved and sacrificed for a number of years, leaving you an inheritance because she loves you. Now, this is different, right? At first, you read the information that you have $10 million in your account. You're elated. But now you read, it happened because... Someone loved you. And so now, with this new information, it moves from your head, where? To your heart. All of a sudden, you find yourself meditating on the depth of your grandmother's love. What I want to suggest to you this morning is one of the major reasons that we are taught and told what has happened to us is so that we might meditate deeply upon the depth of God's love for us. And it lead to praise, everlasting praise for what he has done for us. So let's do that for just a moment. Look at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Look at that phrase, beloved by the Lord. Do you consider yourself beloved by the Lord? We just sang about it, his unfailing love. But notice the next phrase, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. All right, let's stop there for a moment. What we're learning here, we're learning, we're learning more than that, just more than that we've just been saved, okay? We're learning that that came about because a deliberate choice on the part of the living God. God, Paul's saying to these believers and as well to us, God chose you. Another word for that is God elected you. Now, 
in church circles, in church life, sometimes people hear this taught and say, God, God chose me. And it, and it begins to perplex the mind because we start saying things like, God, God chose me? Why, why did he choose me? Is he going to, God, are you going to choose her? Are you, are you going to choose him? And, it, and, it, and it, it can seem a little perplexing and we have a lot of questions. But here, here's how I want to help you to think about this. Because it specifically says, God chose you. And you go, why? It's mind-boggling. Why would God choose me? Christopher Wright is a theologian, and I want you to see what he had to say about this choosing. Look at it with me. It is as if a group of trapped cave explorers choose one of their number to squeeze through a narrow flooded passage to get out to the surface and call for help. The point of the choice is not so that she alone gets saved, but that she is able to bring help and equipment to ensure the rest get rescued. Election, or God's choosing, in such a case is an instrumental choice of one for the sake of many. Now, when you, in other words, when you think, when you read in the scripture, God, God chose you. When you read that, here's what you should understand. He chose you. He chose you as an instrument that others might come to saving faith. How do we know that? How do we know that it's the very word as the first fruits? You see that in verse 13? Look at it with me. But God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Uh, the word first fruits there is an agricultural term. It's that first part of the harvest that is dedicated to God. Paul was accustomed to using this language. You'll read it throughout the New Testament in his letters. And what it is is you bring your first fruits, that first bit from the crop, and you bring it to God and say, God, here, this is yours. Bless this. And, and it was the first of what? The first of more to come. The first fruits was that first part of the crop of more to come. Maybe it'll help if you think about it this way. My wife and I came to Saving Faith in 1980. We began to talk about the fact that we had now committed our lives to Jesus Christ, and we began to adjust our lives to the lordship of Jesus. And it wasn't six months later that my wife's aunt came to Saving Faith in Christ. And then a couple of months later, her husband came to Saving Faith in Christ. And then it was less than a year that my wife's mother came to saving faith in Christ. And then it was less than another year that her father came to saving faith in Christ. Now, what, what does all that mean? It, it, it means, it means that, that my wife was chosen as the first fruits of others to come. She was being used as an instrument in the lives of other people. You understand? And that's what, that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. But how did he do it? Well, look, look, look next. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The means that God used to choose us and to rescue us from the power of sin was through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, just a little sidebar if you're here today and you have, you know, you say, I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe in God being a Trinity. Read these verses again. You find all three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
But here's what I want you to see. Sanctification by the Spirit is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in initially setting us apart as holy unto the Lord. In other words, when when God chose you, he used the means of the Holy Spirit to take you and, and, and like a vessel, you're, you're now, you now belong to God. You're a vessel of his. You are now set apart to be holy or what the Bible calls saints. So if you're here this morning and you've answered the gospel call, you are a saint. Now you may look in the mirror and say, I don't, I don't feel like a saint. I don't look like a saint. I didn't act a whole lot like a saint this week. But according to the scriptures, you are a saint. You've been set apart, you've been sanctified, set apart by the Spirit of God. See, when, when you came to save me, faith, you didn't know all of, I didn't know all of this until I read it here. I was told, I was taught what God did for me. He chose me. He sanctified us by the Spirit. But notice what it goes on to say, and belief in the truth. See, we can't lose sight of human responsibility. It wasn't like that God just saved us apart from our desire to be saved. It wasn't like he said, I'm going to save you whether you like it or not. No, no. No, it said, and belief in the truth. So, so there was the sanctifying work of the Spirit. At the same time, there was, there was our believing, our putting our trust in the gospel truth. And then notice in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. Now, that's another interesting thought there. The gospel message, in other words, when you heard the gospel message, the good news of what Christ has done for you that you could not do for yourself, it was God calling you to himself to which you responded. It was God's call. He, it was like, it was like he picked up his, his android and, and, and dialed you up and said, hey, I want you. I want you. I am choosing you. I want you in my family, you see, to which we respond. We answer the call. See, when we trace, here's the point, listen, when we trace the origin of our salvation, if you, if you went on a search this morning, if you're one of his, and you go on this journey and you trace, I'm gonna, I want to trace this back. Do you know where it leads to? It leads back to the doorstep of a gracious God and his initiative to save you. If you, if you, you know, like you get on Ancestry.com, you start, I want to just know, I want to understand where I come from. If you just got on, you, you get on there and you, you start tracking your salvation, you start tracking, you will find, you'll bring you right back to the doorstep of a glorious God who chose you. See, God has planned, as you read in verse 14, God has planned for you to share in the glory of Jesus at his coming. And so now, just pause for a moment. This should give you something to pray about today, okay? This should give you something to pray about. For starters, it, it would begin with thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanking God for this glorious salvation work <laughs> that began before the foundation of this world that just blow your mind. So it should begin by thanking God. It'll give you something to pray today and this week to dwell on this, what God has done. But it also, it'll also give you something to pray for others. God, would you bring my husband? Would you bring my daughter? Would you bring them into your kingdom? You did this great work for me. You, you, you come after me. You, 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 you did through the sanctification of the Spirit. You did this work. Do it, in the, do it in the life of my wife. Do it in the life of my husband. Pray and ask God. This is the God who does these things. So first, there's the grounds for our standing firm. We... We rehearse again what God has done for us. And it will give you the ability to stand up erect 
and be thankful and, and, and be strong in the Lord. But then secondly, we look at our call to stand firm. Do, do you see here in verse 15, so then. Notice the so then. In other words, he's, he's, he's been saying, God has been so good to you. God has worked so mightily in your life. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I want you to consider Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. I want you to consider those four guys again, all right? These young men were taken from their home in Israel, and they were transported as exiles to the land of Babylon. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. Every day when they went to work, now consider, where did they work? They worked at the king's palace, at Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Every day they went to work, they had to face something. Every day they went to work, they had to face something. What was it? You remember when Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came into Jerusalem, they, they slaughtered people, and they also took many people captive and brought them back to Babylon. At the same time, they destroyed the temple. They, went, they destroyed the temple and they went in and they took all of the golden vessels. They took all of the vessels that were holy unto the Lord. And they brought them back and put them according to Second Chronicles. Read this with me. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Follow me. When a king, when a king defeated another king, they would go into their temple and rape that temple. They would take all of the precious, valuable vessels, all of the holy things of that losing temple, and bring them back to their temple. Now, here's where you have the picture. Nebuchadnezzar has all of these vessels that belong to the living God in his temple. And every day, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to walk by and see those vessels. And you know what that was saying? It was saying, your God lost. Your God lost. How do you like that? Your God lost. They could have become bitter. They could have become really bitter over their circumstances. They have been exiled to a different country. Why didn't God, why didn't God help them? Why didn't God rescue them? They could have been bitter, but they weren't. No, they stood firm. They stood firm. Brothers, sisters, we live in a culture. We live in a culture right now that perceives that our God has lost. Do you know that? You should know that. You need to know that. You see, here's, here's, here's what I want you to see. Supreme Court makes a ruling. Rules against God's ways. Do you know what's happening? They're basically saying, your God has no say here. Your God lost. When we are persecuted at work, are persecuted for our allegiance to Christ, it's our culture's way of saying, your God doesn't matter. I don't care who you serve. I don't care who your allegiance is to. Your God lost. When we suffer for Christ's sake, and our culture says, where's your God now? Where's your God now? Why isn't your God helping you? Where's your God now? It's a culture's way of saying, your God lost. When we face all of those rehashed arguments from the skeptics and the agnostics and the atheists, all these re rehashed, nothing new, nothing new, all this rehashed stuff that's regurgitated back up again, it's their way of saying, your God doesn't matter. Your God lost. And my brothers and sisters, when we are persecuted for our allegiance to Christ, what must we do? 
we must stand firm. When we are suffering for Christ's sake, what must we do? We must stand firm. When the Supreme Court rules in ways that cause us to throw up our hands and say, what's going to happen? We need to stand firm. And as we stand firm, we're also called to hold to. You see that in verse 15? You stand firm and you hold to. What do you hold on to? The traditions that you were taught by us. Now, what does that mean? Paul is saying you hold on to the teachings of the apostles. Did you know right now, and this is frightening in a way, the the Internet has made so much false teaching so accessible. I I was listening the other day to a a podcast of, of of, of a man named Brian McLaren, he was, raised, he was raised in a, uh, a, an evangelical church, similar to what we are. He, just a, he was raised in that kind of environment. But somewhere got crossways. And here's what he's writing about now. His, his mission is he's a writer. He's a speaker. He goes all over the world. And he said this, we, we need a new way of looking at Christianity. Uh, he said, doctrine, all these things that we believe is getting in the way and it's hindering us getting along. And so what we need to do is we need to think more about uh, faith being a way of life as opposed to what we believe. In other words, he's, dri- he's, driving, he's drawing a false dichotomy. He's saying that we don't, don't need to worry about what we believe. You know, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, maybe he didn't. You know, it doesn't matter. They say it's, What really matters is how we live. How we live matters. Yeah, absolutely. How we live as believers matters. But also what we believe will dictate how we live. See, Brian McLaren and others like him will say, oh, we need Jesus. Oh, we need Jesus. I agree, we need Jesus, but we need the right Jesus. We need the biblical Jesus. We don't need the Jesus who is just a good teacher. We need the Jesus who came and died for our sins and rose from the dead and is coming again. That's the Jesus we need. So friends, beware. Beware of what you're hearing out in this world. You need to hold to the teachings of the apostles. And where would you find that? You will find it in the Bible. And the only way to recognize and resist false teaching is to hold to the true teaching of the Scriptures. And you need to hold to it. Cling to it as you stand firm. We are called to stand firm and to hold on. And then finally, let's look at our strength to stand firm. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. In other words, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you to stand firm. And it's going to cost you and I to stand firm. So how do we do it? Where do we get the strength to stand firm? You know, can, 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 we wonder, can I do it? Can I do it? Well, let's, let's just look here and see where our strength to do it will come from. Our strength to stand firm is only because we have a God who is steadfast that we can be steadfast too. Look at verse 16. Paul breaks into a prayer now, and he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Let's, let's take a little bit of time. He gave us eternal comfort. It doesn't say he gave us temporary comfort. He doesn't say that he gave us periodic comfort. He gave us eternal comfort. What is that? The word that is used here for comfort is, is, is to come alongside someone with encouragement. So what would eternal comfort mean? <laughs> it means that forever, those whom he has chosen to be saved, he will come alongside them and give them eternal encouragement. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
Isn't it great that God is so good that he wants to give you eternal comfort? And he does it in the person of the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Then he gives us eternal comfort and good hope. It's good. The hope that God gives is not the hope of this world. The hope that God gives is good because it's a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 7, what God has given us enables us to stand firm and live a good God-honoring life. That's what is meant when it says in verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see, God will not lead his people into a future that he is not in control of. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying this to this church at Thessalonica. He's saying it to us today. God will not lead his people into a future that he is not in control of. Why is that? Because our heavenly father loves us. Look at two things with me and I'll be done. Look at verse 13. Brothers beloved by the Lord. And then in verse 16, God our father who loved us. Bruce Springsteen was being interviewed recently and he was asked, he's, he's always had a difficult relationship with his father. And he was asked, he said, is, is, have, you, have you ever heard your father say, I love you? And his answer was, no. The best you could ever get from him was, I would say, love you, pops. And he'd go, yeah, me too. That's the best of God. Friend, I, I, I want you to see as, as, as one who is saved, chosen by God to be saved, answered the call of the gospel. God does more than, eh, me too. In fact, he does more than just say it. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest. In other words, it was exhibited, it was demonstrated among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Beloved, this is the foundation of all Christian confidence and stability. Our ability to stand firm in the most difficult of times is because we stand on the firm foundation of God's steadfast love for us in Christ. Some of you need to really hear this this morning. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you've stumbled. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you are just broken to pieces and you're wondering, you know, does God love me? Do you hear this? Do you hear this? Beloved by the Lord. If you're in the family of God, if you're one of his, you've answered the call of the gospel. He loves you. He loves you. And that is the stable ground upon which you can get up off your knees, get up off your face and stand firm and hold on to every promise in his word. Stand firm.